0: Welcome to the Higher Ed Retire Podcast with your host, Greg Shepard. Greg is a fee-only financial advisor who specializes in helping those in higher education to take control of their retirement. Since 2001, Greg has helped employees all over the country make the most of their retirement plans. Hey there, folks. Greg Shepard here with Higher Ed Retire Podcast. Man, do I got a good one here for you today. It seems to be a popular topic, and I assume it's crossed all of my clients' minds at one Point or another. So today we're going to talk about, um, well, the question at large here, have you out there ever thought about hiring a financial advisor? Or maybe those of you out there listening, you already have a financial advisor and, well, quite honestly, did you hire the right person? What services, financial services, should that advisor be doing for you? What fees are reasonable to be paying that advisor? You know, a lot of this information just isn't easily found out there. You know, where do you go to get this kind of information? So if this has crossed your mind, any of those questions or all of them, well, this podcast is certainly going to be for you. Maybe not so much for those DIYers listening out there, the do-it-yourselfers. You know, you may find uh, one or two tidbits of information here, but you know, the DIYers are going to do it for the most part on their own. So a lot of this isn't going to apply to you, but let's go ahead and jump in and figure out what your advisor should be doing. Unfortunately, my profession is one of the least trusted professions out there. Uh, You know, it's going to be right up there with those politicians and those car salesmen. Nothing against car salesmen or politicians. That's just the way it is, right? But why is that? Well, like most professions here in our industry, we do have our share of bad apples as well. Now, one difference is that our bad actors get publicized when they get caught doing something wrong because usually it ends up costing people a good deal of money. Other industries may not have such a public display of people just losing money. A big reason why we have some in the industry not acting in the best interest of their clients is exposure to conflicts of interest. My industry is just littered with conflicts of interest. Now, conversely, let's take CPAs, for example. Not much room for conflict of interest in that profession. Typically, you just pay them an hourly fee and they do your tax return. Pretty simple, right? And that's probably a big reason why CPAs are, in general, more trusted than those in my industry. So let's go ahead and get into it. Um, You know, I'm going to talk about three things here, three main topics when it comes to hiring a financial advisor and what you should look for. First, I'm going to spend some time talking about fee structures and what you should expect from your advisor when it comes to how much they charge and how they should be charging their fee to you. Second, I'm going to get into the different kinds of advisors out there. You'd be surprised on how nuanced this industry is. So I'll expand more on that here in just a bit. Third, I'm going to answer the question of what kinds of services should be expected from your advisor. This is often a question people, you know, people just don't know how to ask because most people out there just expect a financial advisor to manage their investments for a fee. And that's pretty much about it. Well, folks, not so much anymore. There's a lot that goes into being a financial advisor, one of which, of course, is managing those investments. But we're going to get into all that stuff as well. Okay, so first thing here are fees and the conversation surrounding that. So what's reasonable and how should your advisor be charging those fees? What fee structure should they be using? But before I get going here, let me preface this topic by telling you that this industry has certainly changed over the last decade or so, you know, in, in a positive way with the emergence around fees and conflicts of interest. With the come comeuppance of the internet lately, there's just more information that's readily available. Of course, this just wasn't the case a number of years ago. Now, as a financial advisor, you must be transparent when it comes to fees and conflicts of interest, if you have any. Now, this fee topic is gonna lend itself to a bigger picture of an advisor Being a fiduciary, okay? A lot of you out there might know that term, fiduciary. That term certainly gets thrown around quite a bit in my industry. And quite frankly, most advisors will just straight up lie to you and tell you they're a fiduciary when they really aren't. I mean, honestly, folks, if that advisor, if he or she just told you they are a fiduciary, are you going to go check to see if they really are one? And if you answered yes, do you even know how to do that? Okay, It's not maybe as easy as you think. Actually, it is, but you just wouldn't know how to do that, to be honest. So this term fiduciary is just going through a blender the last couple years in my industry. There's a massive lobbying power blocking some really good legislation. Gosh, I say that out loud. It's like an oxymoron. Really good legislation. But what I mean by that is that there are those that don't want this fiduciary standard to apply to all in my industry. Okay, let me repeat that. There are some in this industry that don't want this fiduciary standard to apply to everyone in my industry. Those that aren't too interested in doing what's in the best interest for the client are mostly wrapped up in the insurance world. Yep, those folks need to be called out, and that's, I guess, just what I did. What should be pointed out more publicly is that this legislation wasn't even asking for all those in my industry to be a fiduciary all the time. It was just to be a fiduciary in your retirement accounts. I mean, it's pretty hard to believe. Some of the more notable companies like Edward Jones and Northwest Mutual kind of led the charge on this of not wanting to be held to the fiduciary standard. Those companies and other companies like that, they just want to be able to sell products in your retirement plans like annuities, not not necessarily your retirement plans, but retirement accounts, like IRAs, uh, they want to sell annuities that most likely don't belong there and isn't in the best interest of you, the client. Not to mention a lot of these insurance agents get pretty fat commissions on those types of products as well. Now, in my opinion, insurance agents are not financial advisors or really don't even belong in the financial advisor industry. They may come across as financial planners, and experts in a lot of different areas, but they're just looking to sell you some products and move on to the next person. It's a very plug-and-play type transactional business that is very, very impersonal. And when it comes to financial planning and insurance agents, these financial plans they dish out for people are really just a joke. I've seen plenty of them over my years in this industry. You know, they're going to be like 30 pages long And honestly, just not worth the cost of paper it was printed off on. Okay, off my rant and my soapbox, I guess, let's get back to the fees. So you as a client need to look at how an advisor charges, okay? There's really three main ways to charge a client in my profession. Now, it used to be 100% commission. But over the last couple decades, the industry has evolved in a good way. Yes, there are still advisors out there that charge a commission. Like I briefly mentioned before, it is a very, very transactional, impersonal way of getting paid. The advisor or insurance agents mostly, they really have no incentive to do what's in your best interest because they'll make all or most of their money up front. Now, you just don't see a lot of advisors these days charging commissions, but they're out there. This is primarily left up to the dirty world of your insurance agents, to be honest. Now, I grew up in my day way back when of charging commissions, and there, there can be a good case made, charging commissions for those that have lesser account values. I'm not going to get into the weeds here, but it could make sense for a long-term investment. And then the flip side is, well, those that have lower account values, there are services, especially online services that just weren't available years ago okay, that these kind of investors could go to, heck, sometimes for free, if you can imagine that. Okay, so let's move on. Okay, the next way advisors can charge is called fee-based. Now, this term can get pretty tricky and a little misleading to the general public out there. Fee-based means you can charge both commissions and fees. There's also a path for a fee-based advisors that I've seen before, where advisors can get Oh, we'll call them referral fees. Others may call it kickbacks. From other professionals, you know, a lot will come from CPAs. You know, there's nothing illegal here. Okay, nothing wrong going on here. And these aren't bad people. In fact, I know a lot of advisors, not a lot, I know a few advisors that do this, and they disclose everything to their clients. So as long as there's disclosure, 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 there's nothing really wrong with this. I just think it's a bad compensation model, to be honest. Moving on to the third way an advisor can charge. It's called a fiduciary fee-only advisor. So this is the world that I live in. So of course, as you can imagine, I'm going to be a little biased towards this model. Fee-only means that your advisor can only get compensated on what's in the signed management agreement. This advisor can't get paid on anything else. Okay, so now this is going to strip away. It should strip away all or most conflicts of interest that are out there, okay, that the advisor can be exposed to. Now going a little further, a fee-only advisor can charge a few different ways. This is where it gets fun, right? You got the hourly fee, percentage of assets, flat fee, or a subscription model. The first one, hourly fee, you know, it's pretty simple. It's just like most attorneys out there. You get billed on the time your advisor is working on your situation. This includes talking to you on the phone. So. Uh, you know, I just don't see this model out there too much for obvious reasons that I think most of you out there can understand without me explaining in much detail. Next, you have the percentage of assets model or AUM as it's known sometimes. This is how I operate my firm. Now this is going to be your most used model. Typically, an advisor is going to charge around 1% of the assets that advisor is managing for you so for example the most i charge new clients is one percent if a client comes to me and has two hundred thousand dollars under my management my annual fee will be two thousand dollars okay pretty simple now it's going to fluctuate with the account value but hopefully you get the idea now this is going to be a fee that's paid quarterly and it comes right out of the investment account The reason that's important is that you, the client, you're not sending in a check or using some sort of credit card for payment. Next, you have the flat fee model. Again, pretty simple here, but a firm is going to say we charge X per year, regardless of the amount of assets you have. Now, this fee may vary depending upon the type of services you're looking for, but it's a very straightforward model, and the client knows exactly each year what they're being charged. Lastly, you're gonna have the subscription model. This model has gained more traction lately and it's exactly what you think it is. It's like paying monthly for any other service you have, let's say like Netflix. Okay. People like to use that as a comparative. Typically this fee is going to be paid with a credit card or ACH from your checking account. Bottom line here is that I do believe the fiduciary fee only advisor is the only way to go from a client's perspective. Now the way that fee only advisor is going to charge may differ but each fee structure model has its pros and cons. Okay, there's bad and good about each model out there. Overall, I do think a good rule of thumb is that no matter which model your advisor uses, you don't want to pay more than what would eventually equate to 1% of your investable assets per year. Also, we'll get into the services that you should expect, but the fee you're charged should encompass all services like investment management, financial planning, social security, and the list goes on and on. It's not just anymore, not just for that investment management part. One more thing on fees, only because this is such a hot topic in my profession. Make sure your advisor is very transparent when it comes to fees and how they're getting paid. When you email or call up your advisor to ask about fees, it should be a very quick email or conversation with a very simple answer at the end. You know, I'll be honest, if you were to ask a lot of my clients right now what they're being charged, they probably wouldn't be able to answer that question right off the bat. And that's just because, honestly, they've forgotten. It's been years ago that I that I explained the fee structure in detail. So I, I understand that a lot of people out there just may not remember, but it probably was disclosed to them and talked about at some point in the past. So what we did to remedy this in my firm and to remain fully transparent on fees We show our clients what our fee is each quarter when we send out our customized statement. So even if you asked my clients what their fee is or was, and they're not able to answer that, they can pull out their quarterly statement and see it right there in black and white. There's no gray area. So all advisors should disclose or be very transparent on how they charge and what their fees are. You know, honestly, in 19 years, I can count on one hand, probably one hand, how many times I've had a client email or call me to find out what their fee is. One more thing on fees, and I want this to hit home with everybody. I want this to get across to everyone listening out there. You know the old adage, you get what you pay for, nothing's for free. Okay, all those adages out there, you know, that applies to financial planning as well. I'm going to get into a little story here later in the podcast. This actually happened to one of my clients where they left my firm after they'd been with me for over a decade and went back to TIAA because they offer some services for free. I've seen this in the past, and it's not just with TIAA, it's with other companies as well that do some of these services for free. You gotta be careful of that. You're getting into a proprietary process, uh, a process that will only be inclusive of their products. Okay, you gotta be careful. So I'm going to expand on that a little bit later in this podcast. All right, so let's go ahead and transition over to the next topic. Of shedding some light on the different kinds of advisors out there. The financial advisor or financial professional term encompasses a whole array of people in my industry. Are they an insurance agent? Are they a fee-only advisor? Maybe they're a fee-based advisor. You know, that list can go on and on. You can kind of compare this to someone that tells you they're a doctor, you know, I've been to parties before, and I've, I've been introduced to people that tell me they're a financial advisor. And you know, without me telling them, I'm a financial advisor, they'll just disclose all kinds of information, I wish they never would. And I wish most financial advisors wouldn't um, at parties, because it's about like watching paint dry. But I can just tell right off the bat, what kind of financial advisor they are, Um, that it's a very general description of what one can do for a living. It's kind of like when someone tells you they're a doctor. There's a ton of different kinds of doctors out there, right? Now, I'm not saying financial advisors like a doctor. We're not out there potentially saving lives each and every day, but you get the idea. There's a lot of different subsectors of each industry. Now, pushing on regarding those in my industry, there's a lot of people that are going to be salespeople or asset gatherers. As I've mentioned before, salespeople are going to be those that are just looking to sell you products that you don't necessarily need. It's going to be more of a transactional deal, like when you go buy life insurance. How well do you really know that person that sold you that life insurance policy? Odds are you wouldn't know him or her if you ran across them on the street or or on the sidewalk. Now, asset gatherers they're going to be a little different. These can be people that fall into fee based or fee only models, but they'll use a third party money manager to invest your assets. So what that means is that this advisor is not managing your investments. All they're doing is gathering as many clients as they can, to throw them in models. And guess what those models are going to be managed by you know, some outfit, maybe out in New York somewhere else, okay, they are not managing those assets. And on top of that, you're actually paying the advisor and that third party money manager. So, why are you paying the advisor a fee to manage your investments when they literally are not managing your investments? Well, I've seen this so many times before in the past that advisor, you know, they're going to throw in different services to help justify that fee, like social security planning or certain retirement planning services. Your asset gatherers are typically masked as salespeople because that's truly what they are. These individuals typically dress very well and are generally very good talkers. You all know the type of person I'm talking about. Not bad people or really not doing anything wrong. I just think it's pretty misleading, okay? I've run across this a lot in the past because what they don't want you to know is that if you were a little more resourceful, no disrespect here, but if you were a little more resourceful, there are many services out there that would manage your investments in various models, and you could also outsource that Social Security financial planning service as well. But of course, they ain't going to tell you that, right? Lastly, I'd like to talk about the different types of services you should expect from your financial advisor. Now, obviously, he or she is going to manage your investments. Not, they're not going to source that out like I just spoke about to that third party. You know, my opinion is that if your advisor can't manage your investments, then he or she really shouldn't be in the business. I think that should go without saying. So, the service of managing your investments is table stakes and mandatory, and I'm not going to elaborate much more on that. I believe one of the best services an advisor can provide is education, especially with you being in your field. You know, most of you out there listening are going to be in education. So, I assume you enjoy consuming information. Is that maybe a correct assumption? A lot of advisors out there, you know, they're gonna be afraid to teach their clients too much. They don't want their clients to know everything for obvious reasons. You know, these advisors, their insecurities are gonna hinge on the fact that if they teach you too much, you'll do it on your own. And truth be told, a lot of you out there can do it on your own. But this has never been an issue for me and my clients. And honestly, I found that most people out there just don't want to put in the time, which is understandable because most of you are wrapped up doing things in your own world and in your own profession. But maybe of more importance, you all out there just don't trust yourselves to make important financial and investment decisions, which is very justifiable. You know, human behavior is interesting. And I tell you what, I've learned more about human behavior the last few months than I ever cared to learn during this pandemic i had clients trying to sell stock investments in late march and quite honestly a couple did which i had very very little control over but if these others didn't have someone like myself to talk to and bounce ideas off of they definitely would have sold in late march as well which by the way if you're not familiar with the markets as i talk to you this is july it would have been a huge mistake okay back in march so for some people They're grateful to have someone protect themselves from their money, just knowing the fact that they could make investment decisions based on their emotions and not technical or fundamental information. You know, I see a good financial advisor as someone who can easily explain what they're doing from an investment perspective in an educational manner. So for example, I send out weekly videos to my clients explaining what's going on economically, and what current events we're looking at that may impact their investments. Clients love it. I, well, I think clients love it. I get a lot of good feedback from it. But I get to share with them information that they haven't thought of or wouldn't even know to ask me about. And quite honestly, I'm not too shy about sharing the bad information as well. That I think people out there can respect that. You know, I'm not right all the time. I try to be right all the time, but a lot of times it just doesn't work out. I know it's hard to believe, and my wife will certainly, certainly tell you this. But the point is, I'm certainly not shy about telling people that investment we bought just isn't working out, and that we'll need to go a different direction. I also use a lot of economic graphs that were customized by a colleague of mine to help explain economic trends and show people why we bought certain investments. You know, some of you out there just absolutely love that stuff. Others are like, you know, this is why I pay you, and I don't ever, ever I want to see another economic graph as long as I live. I get it. You know, over the course of 19 years, I've actually developed a pretty keen eye as to who falls in which category. So your advisor should be doing some sort of education, in my opinion. doesn't necessarily have to be on economics, but something related to why you're paying that person. Maybe you're getting ready to retire. Well, that advisor needs to educate you as to all the pension options you may have with the university, and maybe how your healthcare options and social security fit into the picture. Okay, moving on here, your advisor should have some sort of game plan when it comes to the retirement planning process. So we'll use my firm, for example, of course. So I start out by using a software that analyzes how much risk is currently in my client's portfolio. And we have a discussion around how much risk they want and should be taking at their particular time in life. Well, that software happens to integrate with a financial planning software I have as well. So that's the next step. Okay. So we're going to talk about expenses and sources of income and those conversations, they can actually take all kinds of tangents, but you get the idea. There really is no plug-and-play type of financial planning. Maybe a better way of saying that is you don't want a, uh, what, a one-size-fits-all type of plan. The software we use is specifically designed to customize to any one situation. So after we have that part down, we then implement the investment decisions that we spoke about that will help accomplish the goals laid out in the financial planning software. And that's it. It's about a two or three meeting process, but it's very simple, it's concise, and I explain it to those that are trying to onboard. Now hear me out, I'm not saying that what we do is the best out there, I'm just simply telling you that your advisor needs a process, and one that he or she can explain in simple terms. So that's a good transition actually, speaking in simple terms or speaking of simple terms, I think a good advisor can and should be able to talk to people using just very simple words. This topic drives me absolutely crazy. Your advisor should not be using all that confusing industry lingo and jargon. I'll never understand why they do this. Well, actually, I, I do understand why most people do it because the reason is that he or she wants to sound really smart, and the less you understand, the fewer questions you're going to ask. I see this all the time on industry conference calls, at you know, physical conferences, industry conferences. Heck most of the time, I don't even know what these people are talking about. Fortunately, I'm at the point in my career where I really, really, really don't care what people think, so I'm not too shy about asking people to dumb it down a little bit for me. You know, I remember getting into this industry when I was, uh, gosh, maybe around 20 years old, not having a clue what people were talking about in my own industry. It was a little embarrassing, and I was pretty shy at that point, Uh, but to this day, I use that and I remember that when I'm talking to clients and prospects. I figure that's why they are hiring me because they don't understand all the nuances of the investment slash financial planning world. So the last thing I want to do is talk over their heads just to make me look smart, which is pretty difficult to do uh, at the get-go. Now, staying on the topic of services You want to stay away from those advisors that try and sell you on the fact that they have these, uh, what, proprietary or an investment process that's unique in this industry, folks. For the most part, all good fee-only advisors are going to put you in inexpensive index-related investments. For the most part, there's versions of that, but the good advisors are going to be aware of costs and keep those investment-related expenses down. Now, you know the old saying, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. I, yours truly, actually fell victim to something of this version way early in my career. This is when I was working on commission, as I noted. Most out there were working on commission in those days. But I got hooked in, hook, line, sinker by some private REIT outfit, R-E-I-T, Real Estate Investment Trust outfit. I'm not going to get into details, but man, did these investments sound good. And they were for a little bit. Needless to say, they ended up not being what i thought and i learned a pretty darn good lesson early on in my career unfortunately sometimes you get to go through real life situations to learn some things but remember especially in the investment world if it sounds too good to be true it probably is and that rings true for a lot of you out there going through certain kinds of financial advisors i onboard you know prospects all the time they may have had a bad experience with their prior advisor and i explained to them not necessarily the advisor. You know, those people are good people. It's the companies they work for and the the way they charge their fees or the way they invest. You know, they're they're looked over by big brother, so to speak. So they may not have a lot of say in what goes on where if you hire someone that's independent, you know, like us in our firm, we have the freedom, the flexibility to do what's in the best interest of our client. Okay, folks, so I'm going to start putting a bow on this podcast here. Now, you as a client or a potential client of an advisor, you should evaluate all the things I've talked about when interviewing that financial advisor. You're going to want to have a long, lifelong relationship with this person. Let me tell you, folks, it's a pretty big hassle to change financial advisors a couple years down the road. You really don't want to do that. So it's pretty important you get it right the first time, right out of the gate. There's so much more to it than managing your investments in this world, in my world. I haven't even talked about the trust element, which is probably not probably, which is the most important intangible thing you need to have with your advisor. Remember, a lot of good advisors will look alike in a sense that they'll put you in inexpensive investments and they're going to have good software that they utilize. However, you must feel comfortable and have a level of trust with that advisor. Without it, Everything I just spoke about is pretty much pointless and meaningless. Okay, folks, I promise one last thing here. Most of you out there listening, you know you're going to be in higher education. I imagine it makes sense to hire an advisor that specializes in working with those in higher education. At least it has some experience working with those in higher education. Well, they're, they're out there. You might think that's a pretty specific niche and too hard to find someone that does that, but promise you, they're out there we're out there. You just need to research a little bit and look around. So here's a quick story and a great example of what I'm talking about. I work a lot with cable or Kansas Board of Regents. They have a few uh, institutions or universities, well, in Kansas. I had a client that, upon retirement, chose to work with TIAA directly. I did reference this person uh, a few minutes ago in the podcast. You know, that happens in this industry, in this business. You know, you're going to lose clients here and there for whatever reason. You know, there's various reasons as to people as to why people leave. Well, this client, you know, she had been a client for about 12 years, I believe. So we did have a pretty good relationship, but she simply told me that TIAA had retirement planning services just like I did, but they were free, 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 free. Now in my head, this was 100% my fault because I should have let her know earlier about a certain strategy I use for KBOR employees when they retire. You know, this is a strategy that I've never seen any other advisor use in KBOR's retirement plan. It's one that we actually had to get approval by the IRS in order to use for future clients. And that was about six or seven years ago. But anyways, before I had a chance to go over this with her, she had already transferred over to TIAA. Now, TIAA will never talk about her using this strategy because it entails taking money out of TIAA, which of course, they are not in the business, as most companies are, they're not in the business of losing those assets. But my point here is, since I've specialized in working with KBOR employees, I know all the ins and outs regarding that retirement plan. And in this case, a TIAA employee is only going to know what they're told and can't give out unbiased advice because they're they're going to be focused on using all TIAA investments in their recommendations. And of course, they're not going to recommend something that uh, entails you taking money out of their platform. So try and focus on using an advisor that has some experience in dealing with higher education retirement plans. And folks, this does not include the reps from the retirement plan vendors, mostly Fidelity and TIAA reps. Again, they're going to give you proprietary information in that regard. Okay, I'll wrap it up here. And I'm going to end on that note, please, folks, uh, feel free to shoot me over some questions that you may have, or maybe you have a topic uh, regarding higher education retirement plans that I haven't hit upon yet. You can find my contact information on my podcast website, which is going to be www.higheredretire.com. There's also a number of other podcasts on that website that uh, should be of use to you. Also remember, my firm does work with those in higher education. So if you're currently looking for some help, Just let me know, and we'll see if we can help you out. All right, folks, thanks again for hanging in there today. This is Greg Shepard with Higher Ed Retire Podcast telling you to take control of your retirement today. Thanks for listening to the Higher Ed Retire Podcast. Just because this episode is over doesn't mean you can't continue your retirement journey. Please visit www.higheredretire.com to see how you can work with Greg or to simply ask him a question. Thanks again.